What's in a name? The Bible uses a multitude of names and descriptions for Jesus. Son of God, Son of Man, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Door of the Sheep, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Resurrection and the Life, the True Vine, the Good Shepherd, the Alpha and Omega, Second Adam, the Author and Perfecter of our Faith, the Cornerstone, the King of Kings, Son of David. Those are some of them. Some of the names by which Jesus is known, to which Isaiah most famously added, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I wonder, do you have a favorite name among those names for Jesus? Of all the names for Jesus, the one that is so meaningful to me and makes so much sense, we sing a lot about it this time of year, is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. John, in the first chapter of his gospel, tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. So of all the names for Jesus, Emmanuel is the one for me. It makes so much obvious sense. And of all the names for Jesus, the one that has always given me pause, as it probably has for many who are literally minded. Are there any literally minded people out here? A few folks like, we don't always get the joke the first time around <laughs> kind of people. So if you're literally minded, maybe this one bothers you a little bit too. And it also comes from Isaiah's list in Isaiah 9, Prince of Peace. How can Jesus be the Prince of Peace? Have you ever read his story? Now, Father, we pause now to sit under your word. Fill us with your truth. Help us to see things the way you want us to see them. Open us up to anything that you want to say to us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus' earthly life was hardly characterized by peace. His, con his conception was a little controversial. I was just waiting for you to catch that. You say that you're not literal-minded. That was a test. When Joseph heard from Mary that she was pregnant, one thing he knew for sure, he wasn't responsible. And naturally, he and, and anyone else who would have heard that would assume that some other man was responsible. They would not have considered that the Virgin Mary conceived by the Holy Ghost. They would not have considered that. So there must have been, if you think about it, a few sleepless nights, at least for Joseph, before the angel of God reassured him about what was going on. And even after that, not everyone would believe the story of Christ's virgin birth. So before he was even born, Jesus' arrival stirred up controversy in some ways, that controversy never left him. If you read in John's Gospel, you get to the 8th chapter, 
Here the grown-up Jesus has an exchange with the Pharisees. And he tells them that they're of their father the devil. But you know what they ask him? Chapter 8, verse 19. Where's your father? And a little bit later, verse 41. Straight out they said it. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. You see, that story followed Jesus around. That controversy followed Jesus around from his birth to his death. Also, before he was born, when his mother and father should have been decorating the nursery, they were forced to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census. And that's a journey about four or five days without luxurious, uh, comfortable transportation, right? And when they arrive in Bethlehem and Mary goes into labor, there is not even a place for them to properly deliver and accommodate a baby. That is hardly a peaceful situation. If you've ever been involved in the delivery of a child, you know how chaotic and difficult that can be in the best of circumstances. And these are some of the worst, hardly peaceful. The child's crib is a feeding trough. In Matthew 2, after Jesus is born, we read how paranoid King Herod feigned interest in the child who would be the king of the Jews and inquired as to where he would be born. And he sent the wise men to find him and to bring word when they had. Because he said that he wanted to worship this child, but in truth he really just wanted to kill off the competition. And the wise men were warned in a dream not to return to him, so they didn't. And in response, what did Herod do? He put out an edict to kill all the male babies in that region that were under two years old. Joseph was warmed in a dream then to take Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt, which they did. Not a very peaceful start. The scripture doesn't elaborate a lot on the um, childhood of Jesus, on his growing up. We just don't have a lot of information about that. But there is this one incident in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 2, which really to me is the original home alone scenario. <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun, okay? These things all come from somewhere. One, uh, on one of the family's annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem, at the time of the Passover, somehow Jesus was left behind in the city. Luke writes, supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. So they're traveling as a clan, they're traveling as a family, and they figure somebody's got Jesus over there. Let's just go. They began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Luke, we've already established this in our study through Acts. Luke is kind of an understated fellow. He uses an economy of words, and he doesn't, he doesn't get overly dramatic. But if you can just think about what is happening right here, right now, when Mary finally realizes that Jesus isn't in the group. Right? She's like that home alone lady. She's going to find the next flight back. She's going to panic. That's what's happening. After three days, imagine it, three days, they found him in the temple. This is where it gets really cool. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, 
and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? It's <laughs> a good Jewish mother. <laughs> Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Then he said, ah, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I should be about the business of my father's house? When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went to, to his hometown of Nazareth. Do you remember what happened there? Yeah, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, went to the synagogue. He declares himself to be the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah. He announced, essentially announces his ministry right there. And instead of a, of a rousing reception that he might expect in his hometown, where people knew him, where people loved him, instead of them saying, this is amazing, this is awesome, his fellow citizens, as the scripture says, were filled with wrath. They were filled with anger. They were upset. And they rose up and they drove him out of town. And they tried to throw him off a cliff. This is the Prince of Peace. At one point, in Jesus, as Jesus was gaining popularity and teaching and healing with great success, we read in Mark's gospel that his family tried to seize him. Mark chapter 3. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. His own family thought that he was out of his mind. Jesus had many conflicts also with the Pharisees. They were well documented. We could cite incident after incident, but we won't. And then, of course, there was that time when one of his own disciples betrayed him for money. And on the night of his betrayal, every single one of his disciples deserted him. Hardly peaceful. By false accusation, Jesus ran afoul of the Roman government. Sanctioned his undeserved torture and execution. Even though they knew that he was innocent of all the charges that were leveled against him, they allowed him to be unmercifully whipped, beaten, and hung on a cross to die. Now that's, that's a very incomplete snapshot of Jesus' life, but it should at least be enough for us to conclude that he is called Prince of Peace, and yet whatever that might mean, it cannot mean that he would live a peaceful, trouble-free life. He absolutely did not. Nor could it mean that his presence would immediately rid the earth of hate, conflict, and controversy. Perhaps that's how I would have interpreted the angel's announcement, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and said, finally, here it is. All the bad stuff's going to stop, and all the good stuff is going to take over. But Jesus' birth did not immediately usher in an age of peace, did it? Those angels did declare his birth to the shepherds. They brought a message of good news, of great joy for all people. And they, they wrapped it up with that. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. That's our modern translation. Uh, they do a better job maybe of guiding our expectations around what it means that Jesus would come. Because I grew up with the King James Version. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And I ask, where is this goodwill? And where is this peace? It wasn't the prevailing characteristic of Jesus' day. 
It has not been through history, and it is not now. Edmund Sears wrote the Christmas carol, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, and in it there's a verse that rarely is included in hymnals. He observed this, but with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. We are indeed men of strife. We are women of strife. A quick spin around a daily news cycle is enough to leave one in a state of sadness, if not outright clinical depression. And you know what? We really don't have to read or listen to the news to know of strife or sorrow, do we? The threats to peace that we face are personal. In our own little lives, in this little corner of the world, we have plenty of conflict and plenty of unrest. As joyful as the Christmas season can be, it is also a time that by nature makes us painfully aware of relationships that are askew, damaged, or lost. Some marriages today in this very place are not the source of joy that God intends them to be. Some in this room are going through the holidays without dear loved ones for the very first time. Others are facing scary diagnoses. Others are struggling to know how the finances will hold up between now and the end of winter. There is no shortage of unease. There is no shortage of dis-ease. Even among those who love Jesus and know that Jesus loves them. He is called the Prince of Peace, and yet whatever that means, it cannot mean that he would mow down or pluck up all the thorns and the thistles that make men's lives so hard. Where is this so-called peace that Jesus is supposed to bring? How is Jesus the Prince of Peace? To answer that, we have to first start with what the Bible means when it speaks of peace. You and I have our ideas about peace, don't we? About what it means, about what it ought to be, and, and you and I would even hold God accountable for some of those ideas sometimes. But is what we understand peace to be the peace that Jesus promises to bring? The peace of Jesus that Isaiah references when he calls him Prince of Peace is captured by that Hebrew word shalom. Today's shalom is a common way to greet, to say hello or goodbye. But writing for Crosswalk, Jason Swarovski comments this way. He says, shalom was used as both a greeting and a farewell. It wasn't just meant to wish a person a lack of war or struggle. Rather, shalom goes deeper. Shalom might be called the peace of the Lord. It is completeness, soundness, well-being, complete reconciliation. The peace of Jesus spoken of in our scripture reading from Romans that Mike read, Romans 5, comes from a Greek word, irane. It means peace, quietness, rest, to set at one again. 
You see, if you and I believe that the peace that Jesus brings is a peace that will make all of our rough spots smooth or insulate us from danger or see that we always get along or ensure that we only receive good news, make every day for us a carefree walk in the park, those are not bad things. We can hope for those things. But if that's what we think the peace of Jesus is, we're going to feel cheated because they don't accurately represent the type of peace that Jesus brings. The peace of Christ is the peace that sets at one again that which is no longer one, that which has been divided, that which has been broken. The peace that Jesus brings is a peace that sets things right. And I believe we would all agree probably that for a long time things in this world have not been right. They're not right now. Jesus came to set things right. Which should lead us to ask at least, well, what's wrong? What went wrong? And Justin answered this last week when he took us back to Genesis 3 and the story of the fall of man when he said, of course, not a very Christmassy text, but in fact it is a Christmassy text because it's the first prophecy of Jesus. So back there we read that God created the world and everything in it and declared it was good. He created man, he created women, and the relationship they shared there was perfect, but one day Adam disobeyed God. And when he transgressed, and by his transgression, sin entered the whole race, and the relationship between God and mankind was changed. Pastor Eric Raymond describes this as the day the record skipped. There's only like 30 of you that even know what that means. <laughs> I read that, and I thought, man, that is a dated, that is a dated illustration, right? A lot of you are like, the day the record skipped. Okay. Whatever. The, yeah, the CDs, CDs do kind of skip, but it's not like vinyl, okay? okay so let me, let me explain this to you. Many years ago, right after the time of the caveman, people used to record music and put it on things called records. Vinyl records. And these records, which took up a lot more space than the music on your phone, these records had to be played on, guess what, are they, what they call them? Sure. Record players. Yeah, just seeing if you're still with me. Okay. Right? And sometimes if you get a little rambunctious while you're playing your records and dancing too close, it would actually skip the needle that played the records would skip, right? And sometimes if you weren't paying attention and you hit the needle on the record player, it would go all the way across that vinyl record, which was a terrifying sound if you just bought that record. Because you know that that would mean that you have created a scratch in your record and conceivably, when it goes around, the needle will skip a groove or skip more than one groove and the song that you love will not be played the right way and it will never be played the right way on that record again. The record skips. The thing has changed. It doesn't function the way it was designed. 
And that's what happened when sin was introduced into the world. Messed it up. And it made it so it would never be the same. Adam and Eve sinned and plunged not only all of humanity, but all of creation into a world that's cursed by sin. And as a result of this, this previously perfectly ordered world no longer functions as orderly or perfectly as it was designed. This, by the way, is exactly the answer to your question, what's wrong with me? Okay? If you ever ask that question, it's also, it's also the answer to the question, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Anybody ever asked you that question? What's wrong with you? And it's the answer to the question, what's wrong with this world? And it is the theological basis behind our general observation of a lack of peace. Because everything is broken. Everything is tainted. Everything is harder than it would be in a perfect world, including and perhaps especially mankind's relationship to God. This relationship between creator and created that at one time was characterized by harmony and fellowship is now estranged because of our rebellion. And where Adam and Eve once walked with God and then because of their sin fled from him and hid from him. So now in our rebellion we too are wont to flee and to hide from God. It is this. Okay? It is this fractured, out of joint, out of order, conflicted relationship between humanity and God that Jesus came to fix. This is what he came to put right. So first we ask, what is the peace that Jesus brings, the peace that sets things right between God and man? And second we ask, well, how does Jesus provide this peace? And the answer is by satisfying God's wrath. God's wrath. I know that's not, that's not always a picture that we want to conjure up in our minds. We much prefer the idea that God is love and God is all love and God is, God is never upsetting. God is, not, God, is, God is not a wrathful God, but the scripture tells us something a little bit differently. God can hold these things in perfect balance, whereas you and I would struggle with that. We're either going to be one way or another. But God can be a loving God and also be a God who has wrath and he's right and righteously angry over humanity's sin, over our sin. And that sin deserves to be punished. And the Bible says that it warrants the punishment of death. And here's where Jesus comes in. He took that punishment on himself at the cross, became our substitute, which is why we just say he died in our place. That's what we mean. He died on that cross in our place, and he satisfied the debt of our sin. And the Apostle uh, Paul wrote, writes about this in first, uh, first chapter of Colossians, verses 19 to 22. For in him, which is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, that is to bring, bring back to a former state of harmony, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the peace that Jesus brings. He does not bring peace that is an end in itself per se, but peace as a consequence of reconciliation. 
that since the Garden of Eden, humanity has been running and hiding from God, alienated from Him, painfully aware of how unworthy we are because of our sin. And Jesus solves that problem. He pays for your sin. And God is satisfied with what His Son has done. And you know what that means? God is satisfied with you. That's what that means. And all that is left for sinful humanity to do is to receive this gift. What the Bible calls salvation. To believe that what Jesus did on the cross was for you. And this is called faith. And when you place your faith in Jesus, you, you become what the scripture calls justified. And you know what that means. It means just as if you've never sinned. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? And so Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace that Jesus brings, that's the peace that Jesus offers, an everlasting peace, the consequence of Christ's atoning work that sets at one again, that sets aright our relationship with a holy God for eternity, forever. And this peace is the bedrock for any true sense of well-being that we will ever have in this life. It is a foundation of any true sense of rest that we'll ever know in this weary world. It is the future promise, friends, it is the future promise that makes the present sufferings tolerable. The glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. That's what the carol writer says. And nothing will bring more comfort and assurance than being reconciled to God through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Let's stand.